welcome to How to Win Friends and Influenza, a podcast all about life in medicine and different specialties. So welcome, my name is Lily and I'm your host. Now, unlike jellyfish, humans have evolved to have bones. Why is this? Well, obviously it's so we can break them. Well, just kidding. But you can really break bones, as you probably know. But just in case you didn't know, you can break bones, and that's pretty bad. So orthopedic surgery is the branch that deals with fractures, spinal and skeletal issues, osteomyelitis, and limps, and even more. So in this episode, we talk to Dr. Sakib to learn more about this exciting specialty. Welcome on the show. Hi, Lily. Thanks for having me, and uh, happy to be here. Yeah, awesome. Thanks to have you on the show as well. Now, today we're so excited to be talking about orthopedic surgery. So I mentioned a couple of things that it covers, people with broken bones. That's kind of the first thing that we think about. What exactly would a typical patient pool look like? What sorts of pathologies would they have? So I think uh, orthopedic surgery, we can very much break down into two, two different categories. And for me, the first one is trauma. And so trauma and orthopedic surgery is the overall category. And trauma, I feel, is one of the most interesting and fascinating diseases. Uh, that people don't consider trauma to be a disease, but ultimately it is. And what makes trauma fascinating, and to answer your question about the patient pool, is that trauma can affect anybody. It's indiscriminate. It doesn't care who you are. It doesn't care about your genetics or your ethnicity or where you're from in the world doesn't matter about your richness or poorness, it can affect you. So you can be the richest man in the world or the poorest person, a baby or an adult or an elderly person. Trauma will uh, affect you and change your life uh, significantly. So what's fascinating is that you see every, your job sees every patient population out there. Wow. So at first it sounds like trauma is a really nice friend, you know, really targets everyone, doesn't discriminate. But on the other hand, it's quite scary because motor vehicle accidents, something else, it could really affect anyone. So trauma sounds like a big part of orthopedic surgery. What else is there? So the, the other side of things is, is the orthopedic surgical side, which obviously significant similarities, but it's the, the elective side of, uh, of musculoskeletal surgery. Uh, and for me, that is more of a disability service. If you have a person with a disability or developing a disability, uh, orthopedic surgery's role is to uh, reverse that, prevent it, or improve someone's quality of life. Uh, so it's the less acute uh, manifestation of trauma. Uh, trauma you know, changes you suddenly. You can be uh, going to work one day or going to a job interview and have your whole life planned ahead of you, or just you know, planning to go on holiday take the milk out, uh, suddenly you fall over, suddenly you're in a car accident, and in that split second, in the blink uh, of an earthquake, um, your whole life trajectory changes. And the job of the surgeon is to put you back onto the plan that you had before that trauma happened. Orthopedic surgery in an elective setting is something where you are developing a disability or have already obtained a disability and you want to improve your function um, and quality of life and so it's more of a planned stage thing where you're trying to improve someone's life trajectory um, but it hasn't suddenly you know worsened yeah now one thing you said was quite scary for example you could be just going to get some milk and then trauma could happen but the interesting thing about trauma is that it can range from something 
high energy, a, a car crash or earthquake, something like that, to maybe a fallen outstretched hand, maybe a fallen elderly person, there's a big range. So it seems like orthopedic surgery is characterized by opposites. You can have acute patients, you can have chronic presentations, for example, uh, scoliosis or something that's really ongoing, maybe limb length discrepancy, something chronic. So you can have trauma, you can have elective, you can have acute, you can have chronic, and even within surgery itself, there are patients on whom you'll do surgery and then ones where you'll do something more clinical and be there more as a consulting role. So it seems like there's a big range in orthopedic surgery. So what attracted you to this specialty in the first place? Um, to be perfectly honest, I really didn't like orthopedic surgery for a <laughs> long period of time. Um, even my first placement uh, in, orthopedic in orthopedic surgery, I really disliked it. Um, I felt like as a surgical specialty, you weren't really saving anyone's life as much as, you know, if you're removing a bowel tumor or an aortic dissection. Uh, but it was only when I started doing emergency medicine, when I started seeing the implications of what trauma does to someone's uh, quality of life and how it affects them. So, you know, you could injure yourself and not be able to work. You can't feed your family. Um, you can be... A, a footballer one day, an aspiring uh, you know sportsman, and then uh, lose that career. Uh, a pianist who injures his finger, and when I started realizing how much disability that can be prevented and improved upon by orthopedic surgery, it made me realize that philosophically, what's more important as a surgeon or as a human is is it the quality of life that you're trying to improve or the quantity of life, and so more significant, you know, life-saving surgery is very, very important. But for me, I, I valued the quality of life. And so in the vast majority of times, orthopedic surgery is to focus on that. And I started realizing I value quality more than quantity. And so I went down the orthopedic surgery route. Um, so yeah, that was my kind of main motivation for, yeah, okay. for developing that. That's really interesting. So it's not just about saving someone's quantity of life, but also improving their quality of life. And I, I suppose you made this comment that you didn't think orthopedic surgery was life-saving, but you could say it's quality of life-saving. And in the end, that is also very important. Something you said earlier was that doing surgery, you could really very quickly fix someone's issue. For example, someone has a broken bone or something like that. You could do some fixation and in a sense, immediately it's fixed. So I imagine that's also a very satisfying part of surgery in general, that you can offer a solution that is practical, that often works. Uh, surgery, by its very nature, has that immediate uh, effect on, on someone. Um, you're resolving an, ana an anatomical problem uh, within the space of a few hours of, you know, of surgery. And so that's gratifying for any, for any surgeon. Um, and I think from the orthopedic sense, you're trying to Yes, certainly in the trauma sense, trying to get that um, patient back onto the plans and the life trajectory that they, they had before they got injured. Um, there is, light, there is to be fair, although I've talked about quality of life, what makes orthopedic surgery even more interesting is there is quantity of life uh, procedures as well, uh, which gives you such a nice variety. So in terms of trauma, you know, life-threatening pelvic trauma can be uh, alleviated with uh, orthopedic surgery. And um, tumor surgery is still, a, you know, a major part of orthopedics. Uh, whether that be metastases from uh, other other tumors or primary uh, bone tumors such as osteosarcoma in the teenage population, you are still doing or have the potential to do quantity of life surgery, you know, cure a cancer. Uh, so, what makes trauma and orthopedic surgery 
interesting is you see every population type or have the ability to um, you are improving disability and you and you do have that uh, quantity of life aspect to it should you want to pursue that particular uh, subspeciality and um, and it's instant you know yeah. what, what intervention you make as with all surgery uh, that gratifying instant change that you can offer is there. And to add on to what you said one could even argue that if you improve someone's quality of life that you give them the scope to have greater quantity of life so for example if you improve someone's lower limb function that they have more potential to walk around and and you know go to the shops and physical activity great things like that so i suppose everything is kind of linked yeah for sure i mean there's definitely uh, a suggestion that you know if you give someone's mobility back they're going to have a, a healthier uh, physiology and therefore you know progress better and and you know that that's the case for a number of orthopedic procedures yeah now you also mentioned anatomy, you said for example orthopaedics is a very anatomical sort of specialty, so I'm going to assume, put myself out on a limb and make a terrible pun, and assume that you need a good knowledge of anatomy to be successful in orthopaedic surgery. Yeah, I mean, um, I think every surgeon needs to have a, a grasp of anatomy and I feel when you are actually operating and you're in the operating room and you've got your knife in your hand and you're about to make the incision, um, having that knowledge of anatomy of where things are in relation to where your knife is makes a huge difference to uh, your confidence in the procedure. You can never know every minuscule detail of anatomy, but you need to have a, a good grasp of where things are. And, and knowledge is power. Um, if you uh, know your way around a particular approach to the part of the body, whether it's the hip or the spine or the ankle, and you have um, confidence in where things are, your procedure is a lot more fluent in what you do. So as a trainee, you're learning your way around a specific part of the body, uh, but as you get uh, more experienced and have a better grasp of the more in-depth anatomy, um, your skills improve as well. So I think your anatomical knowledge does have an influence on your your skill and so it's a nice combination of knowledge that you must have as well as obviously the, the motor skills to uh, implement uh, that knowledge. Okay and how much do you need to know about anatomy? For example do you need to know the entire body including the head and the neck or is it just a really big focus on musculoskeletal and neurovascular sort of structures? I mean with orthopaedics it's, it starts um, predominantly with musculoskeletal stuff so uh, joints, um, upper limb, lower limb, spine, pelvis you know, very rarely uh, will we need to know uh, about um, abdominal, thoracic, uh, and head and neck stuff. Although you know, occasionally there are crossovers. Um, but then, as as you train in surgery, you start having to know everything uh, at a, a wider level, but not too much depth. And then, as you start to become more and more focused, you go down orthopedic surgery. You start to learn all the anatomy about specific parts and then as you become more subspecialized and you just become a hip surgeon or a hand surgeon or a foot surgeon obviously your depth of anatomy in those specific areas starts to grow and you start to gradually forget a little bit of the other anatomy so um, in, in conclusion the more subspecialist specialization you have the more depth you have of just one specific part of the body and it can go down as far as probably hands or hips as as like or spines is just your pure subspecialty area where that's all you know. That's the anatomy of that one part of the body. But to get to that point, you have to know a fair amount before that.
Right, so start off generalist and then if you feel really, really passionate about one limb, you might start going more and more specialised. And that's a general trend in many medical specialties that you will tend to sort of specialise and become an expert in one area. Okay, so we've talked about anatomy. What about other skills that you might need? For example, do you need to be really great at reading imaging like x-rays? Um, sure, I mean, it's part of, uh, part of making your decisions is being able to interpret investigations. Um, I think the most important thing is, uh, and, I, and I take this with all, all medicine in general, is being able to communicate appropriately with your patient. And what's interesting about orthopedic surgery, compared to, again, other spe surgical specialties perhaps, is that it requires a lot of patient understanding of the surgery that's being performed, predominantly because you require the patient to understand and rehabilitate afterwards. For example, if you're doing a cataract operation on a, on a patient that's you know, got a cataract, you perform the procedure, but there's very little the patient needs to do post-op to uh, get the benefits, or a cleft lip surgery on a child. Whereas if you're doing a hip operation, a hip replacement, or a tendon transfer, or um, you know, a trauma fixation, you require that patient to 100% understand their role in the recovery. You can't do the surgery and expect the patient to return back to normal. They have to rehabilitate. And unless you communicate really well with your patient and explain exactly what they need to do and have the services to support them, you won't get that uh, outcome that you want. So communication is perhaps even more, ironically, because orthopedics has got a very bad reputation for communication, is, is probably one of the most important aspects of getting a good outcome for your surgery. Um, and in terms of investigations, then for sure, you need to understand imaging, um, have a good grasp of radiology, um, thankfully, we don't really need to interpret ECGs uh, anymore. Um, but yeah, imaging and radiology is a super important part of it. So you, you raise a really interesting and relevant point about patient compliance, patient teamwork. Because if you did a really great surgery and you recommended the patient do some kind of follow-up, for example, wear a brace or put on some plaster, but they decided that they just won't listen to you and they just won't do any of that, of course that's going to make the outcome not as great. So I suppose it's like an orthodontist putting braces on a kid and then the kid never cleans their teeth and doesn't wear their retainers at night, something like that, and their teeth move all over the place and it's like, what's the point of having done that in the first place? So it sounds like patient communication, getting them to understand and, and hopefully agree if that's in their interest. That sounds really, really important. So in your patient interactions in orthopedic surgery, do you tend to have a lot of follow-up or is it, you know, do the operation of the patient, see them once and then never see them again? Uh, it's variable and it's, there's so many different conditions uh, in orthopedics that there will be some scenarios where just a one-time follow-up, uh, you get an instant quick result and you're probably happy to let that patient continue. Uh, whereas other, other uh, kind of pathologies, you need to continue a longer term follow-up. So for example, pediatric surgery, you know, or the deformity correction, you often need to see that patient for a number of years up until skeletal maturity. Uh, when hip replacements were first, you know, being developed you know, 20, 30 years ago, patients would be followed up for a long period of time to ensure that their hip replacement was surviving. But now, on average, most surgeons will follow their patient up for about six months to a year. Um, but then there are other other surgeries, for example, carpal tunnel surgery. You know, you release a, a, the patient's carpal tunnel, their symptoms improve, you're happy with the wounds, you know, healed after two weeks, and sometimes they get discharged. A trauma surgery, once the patient's healed after six weeks or, you know, a little bit longer, they often get discharged. So it's very variable. Some patients are friends for life, and some patients uh, flee in and out of your practice quickly.
Mm. Okay. Now, I imagine one of the big questions that patients will ask you is about prognosis. For example, someone fractures some bones in their forearm, they want to know if a deformity is going to remain, if they'll always have a bumpy callus there, or if it's going to go, or if they have a limp or something like that, they want to know what's going to happen to it. So what gives you the confidence to answer what you think is going to happen? Because I suppose none of us can see the future. That, that, that's a really interesting question because, again, one of the things that kind of used to frustrate me about orthopedic surgery was not being able to appreciate the outcomes or the difference you're making. So, for example, you break your ankle tomorrow and you come and say, I, I tell you, you need surgery. And you say, well, doctor, how am I going to get a good result? Um, and I can uh, you know, say, yes, we'll, we'll get you back on your feet. Your, your ankle will be great once we put it back together again. And then I can have some in-depth discussions with my colleagues and my seniors about you know, the best way to fix this ankle. And uniformly, patients will have you know, relatively good results and be back on their feet, and you see this. But it was only until I realized what life is like without orthopedic surgery, if you did not have that procedure, what your disability would be. And in the Western world, you don't really see that because everybody who breaks their ankle is going to come to the hospital and get treatment and get fixed and get physio and have a, you know, we can be fairly confident your outcome is going to be pretty good. You're going to be back on your feet. Um, when I traveled in different parts of the world, um, in a lot of low-income countries, when I saw the neglect of what somebody presents with when they have not had orthopedic surgery, if you've had a dislocated hip for three years, or your elbow's been out for a few months, or you've had an operation that's gone badly, or not done appropriately, and the absolute devastating disability that causes, you start to realize how important a good operation and, and an orthopedic surgery is. So, if you came to me tomorrow and said I've broken my ankle, I can be fairly confident to say yes, you'll have a good operation and a good outcome. And I can be fairly confident to tell you what life would be like if you did not have that, because I've seen a lot of it and it's quite, um, it's quite dramatic. And it's quite reaffirming for me as a surgeon to say, look, I can give you a good outcome. I can't make it perfect. I can't go back in time to prevent the trauma, but I know what life is like is if you, if you decided not to have surgery. So it sounds like a combination of experience from seeing other patients with similar fractures or similar issues, seeing what it's like, knowing that you can refer to other disciplines like physiotherapy, there's a lot of follow-up. And also, as you said, knowing what would happen if you did not get the surgery and being able to explain that that would be a much worse outcome. Yes. Yeah. Right. And yeah. so you've had quite an interesting travel history. You've been to some um, developing countries. You've worked in developed countries. What do you think is the biggest difference between all of them? The, well, the, the starkest difference is the access to healthcare and the access to surgery. Um, so there's a lot of recent studies kind of citing the discrepancies between low-income and high-income countries. So there's a, a kind of a, a flagship uh, research article written in The Lancet in 2013 or 15, I forget, describing that five billion people, they estimate, don't have access to safe surgery. And the ones that do end up getting financially crippled by having one operation. So you can have an operation and then be in debt for the rest of your life. Um, and so the access to surgery is so great that a lot of people end up having neglected disease. Um, and, and that's it, basically. That's the massive difference. You, you can come to the UK or in Australia and you'll have um, an operation fairly quickly after you break your limb or you develop a, a little you know, lump on your hand. Whereas in another part of the world, you will have a tumour developing in your knee for weeks and months and years 
and you will ignore that problem for as much as possible for a number of reasons. One, there's no hospital available. Even if there is a hospital available, there's no orthopedic surgeon. Even if there is a hospital and orthopedic surgeon available, you don't have the, uh, the finances to get there. And even if you did have the finances uh, to get there, the culture that you've lived in or the access to services you've had means that you'd rather go to a traditional healer. Um, and, and you could be you know, the only breadwinner for your family, which means that you have to ignore whatever symptoms you're developing until the point where you can't carry on. So um, it's neglect. And, and so I've seen patients with you know, young kids with tumors the size of footballs, You've seen, you know, working, working adults with uh, hip dislocations trying to potter around. You've seen a patient, uh, you know, a 40-year-old uh, I saw a few months ago uh, had a club foot, uh, which was neglected. She'd right. lived uh, with a club foot for 40 years. Right. Um, normally you would correct that around the time of birth. Normally you'd, you'd come straight away, yeah. you know, in the first few weeks of life or the first few months of life and have a fairly simple treatment. But this poor lady had walked around as a farmer with a club foot and it was only after 40 years that she found out about the hospital we were working in and thought, oh, maybe I can try and get this sold. But it already affected her life. She, she never got married um, because of the deformity. Nobody wanted to marry her. She uh, doesn't have any children. Um, and it's only after 40 years when she started to feel she couldn't work as a farmer because the pain was getting a bit too much that she decided to seek treatment. That discrepancy is is out there every day um, and so that's the major difference that you see neglect yeah and just on the note of the club foot which has been delayed if someone waits a very very long time to present to an orthopedic surgeon does that limit your options do you ever reach a point where you say oh we can't treat you because it's been too long or is there always something you can do it's again what makes orthopedic surgery interesting is that you for elective cases you don't necessarily you don't have to do anything in theory uh, because sometimes the surgery has more risks than its potential benefits and so you have to make a very educated decision and what makes it more difficult is if you have neglected disease it makes the outcomes of success more difficult and it makes the complications potentially higher so you, you have a high threshold to offer surgery and a lower expectation so if you come 40 years down the line you know you're chances of getting a, a much happier outcome are going to be less than if you presented a, as a six-month-old with a club foot and you can give a 95% guarantee that you're going to have normal feet for the whole of your life. So that decision-making process um, is quite interesting in orthopedics because, it's a, because you're preventing disability and not necessarily saving someone's life. You don't have to advocate for surgery. I, if you had a club foot and I said, you know, if I didn't do the surgery, I know 100% I'm not going to, you know, make your life longer, I don't have to do that surgery. Whereas if you had a tumour, you know, there's a lot more advocate advocacy for offering surgery. So um, it's more difficult. Right, right. And that makes sense because a tumour might stop you from making great podcasts, but a club for it, you know, you can still make excellent podcasts for right. your voice despite yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You don't need your foot for podcast <laughs> management. All right. Now, going back to talking about developing countries, so obviously... Uh, there's a lot of difficulties there, not just because they might not have access to podcasts, but also there's a lot that can be done there, a big lack of resources. And this is a great segue to talk about some of the excellent work that you're looking into. Can you tell us about some of your projects outside the traditional orthopedic clinic stuff? Um, so I've been quite lucky to um, have worked in different, different countries uh, at different times. Um, so 
I've worked um, in South Africa for a year and, and that gave me a little bit of an insight into um, some of the differences in healthcare that's been provided. Um, and that made me more interested and passionate about improving some of the discrepancies in global health. Um, there's two different types, I think. There's the emergency relief uh, and then there's the kind of long-term uh, sustainability of improving uh, services. So emergency relief uh, has its role. Uh, I worked um, briefly after the Haiti earthquake and saw some uh, pretty devastating stuff and in Pakistan as well after some floods. But I'm more interested in the long-term sustainability of providing surgical services. So what I'm trying to develop at the moment is um, a web presence and an online platform to empower and um, enlighten some of the projects that are currently going on in the world. There's so many hundreds and thousands of interesting surgical projects. Um, all have their voices and all trying to improve surgery one step at a time. And so this, the project I'm developing is trying to unite these voices into one platform, uh, as well as um, give some of the uh, tools that surgeons working in low-income countries don't necessarily have. Um, so the project is called One Surgery and it has a domain name one.surgery, which is pretty easy to remember. Because yeah, you don't have to go .com anymore. You can That's go right, .surgery. .surgery. It's a cut to the chase. <laughs> okay, yeah. And basically, to, to summarise what you said, you're making this really cool website which gives people across the world, I suppose, online access to do a lot of cool things in surgery, hopefully make surgery across the world a lot better, especially in countries where they don't have a lot of resources. So they might be able to... Uh, keep a digital logbook and do things like that. Yeah, that's so, right. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and try and give a voice. So, as we said, it, like getting the data and the research out there is, is difficult. But for somebody uh, in low-income countries, they've got multiple problems uh, that we don't necessarily appreciate as training doctors and surgeons in this country. So you're dealing with difficult disease, you're dealing with um, patients who are neglected, you're dealing with um, subpar facilities and a massive patient load. And so you're working in these very difficult conditions. How do you improve your service? Well, it's very, very difficult. And how do you improve your training when you've just got so much clinical workload to go through? So we're very lucky here that we go through a training program, we have supervision, we get told, you know, this is how we should get better. Uh, whereas guys in low-income countries don't have these colleges and these supervisors, so having a platform for them where they can, you know, develop their career, develop their their understanding of their own um, experience, giving them a logbook, which seems simple, but they don't necessarily have, um, giving them uh, research tools so they can go ahead and um, improve their own outcomes, is something we take for granted. Um, so the the project aims to to give some of that back to, to the guys working in these countries. And the good thing is that everyone now has mobile phones and internet access is universal. So although medical access isn't universal and access to instruments and you know good safe surgery isn't there, everyone's got access to the internet. Um, so we can use that and, and that's what the platform hopes to do. Okay, so what I really, really like about this is that it emphasizes what your values are about, which are helping those in need, for example, in developing countries, and also with orthopedic surgery, really improving people's quality of life. So I feel that what you're doing really melds those two things. So going back to orthopedic surgery itself, when we last left off, we were talking about people who had really delayed presentation. So you've actually worked in both child and adult orthopedic surgery. Do you find that children have better outcomes then? If they present earlier, they have better healing capacity? Um. 
I think anybody who presents early has, has a good healing capacity. I think, um, I don't necessarily think that, you know, a child will have a better outcome. Um, for example, a hip replacement operation is probably one of the most successful surgeries that have ever existed. And you can almost, you know, not guarantee, but, you know, suggest that somebody who has a hip operation is going to be pretty happy with their results and have, you know, 95% good outcomes in the sense that their their prosthesis will be lasted 10 or 15 years down the line. So if you ha had, you know, in your 60s or 50s or 70s and had debilitating arthritis and you could offer an operation that was going to cure that or improve it, the outcomes with, with orthopedic surgery are universally good. Um, so adults have good, good outcomes. Okay. But the differences with children is that the outcomes will last for longer um, in that sense. So if, you're, if you prevent, prevent a disability in a child, hopefully that will give them 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years of disability prevention. Whereas if you improve disability in an adult or an elderly person, you know, sadly with life expectancy, you're only going to give 10, 15, 20 years of improved quality of life. So with children, your outcome is longer. And in the low income setting, your outcome is much greater because that child needs to, you know, there's no social services, there's no disability access, there's no wheelchair ramps to go up and down, there's no, you know, uh, government service is going to help you if you're disabled, you're often going to get neglected, left at the back of society. So if you can prevent that, prevent somebody from being, a, you know, uh, disabled, prevent somebody from being a beggar, giving them the opportunity to work, you transform that person's life and that family for 50 or 60 years. So paediatrics has that uh, importance that it gives you longevity. Yeah. So it sounds like in developing countries, the marginal benefit of the surgery is even more powerful because of the lack of other services. But it is good to know that adults can have good outcomes too. Yeah. And I suppose with children, it could theoretically go both ways. You could be preventing a lot of disability later on. But if they have a deformity or disability early on, then I suppose it's going to affect them for longer. So it is a bit of a double-edged sword. Now, talking about orthopedic surgery, I suppose there are two aspects to it. One is the surgical aspect itself. People have that image of, of someone with a gigantic hammer and nail, you know, doing something to someone's hip. But then there's also the other aspect, which is clinic. So some of the duties that I think you would have in orthopedic surgery are ward rounds, consultations in the clinic, private or public, whatever you choose to go down, and surgery. Is that a good summary of the sorts of things that you would do? Well, I mean, uh, what's interesting is... Um Firstly, just to counteract the point of the hammer and the and the you know the nail, orthopedic surgery does have that kind of uh, stereotype that it's all about brute power, um, whereas you know other specialities will say it's a little bit more skilled. But to be fair, and again, this is what makes orthopedics so kind of universal is that you have some subspecialties where you need you know microsurgical skills, so yeah. hand surgery. Uh, you know, you don't you're not being brutal when you're, you know, yeah, you repairing someone's hand, hand. re-implanting a finger on someone yeah. who requires very delicate, fine, microsurgical skills, and then spinal surgery as well is very similar. So you're not going to be knocking in uh, with a big hammer when you're around the spinal cord. So there is that brute element to it if you want to be this big macho, you know, hip replacement guy. But if you're more of a delicate surgeon, um, there are subspecialties in orthopedics where you can really uh, fine-tune some microsurgical skills. And then, yes, there is that uh, clinical aspect to it, um, which, which, is, uh, which is often not ignored, but it's not uh, perceived to be particularly exciting, uh, the clinics and the ward rounds. 
but it's um, it's part and parcel of being a being a surgeon is that you have to cancel your patients pre-op. You have to make sure their post-op recovery is good. Um, so yeah, it's part of it. It's important. Yeah. So working as an orthopedic surgeon in a hospital, there's of course an inpatient aspect where you might do surgeries themselves. But then there's also a big outpatient consulting aspect. So there's a lot of variety there. Now, some alternatives that people might consider instead of orthopedic surgery are sports medicine and rheumatology, because these are also musculoskeletal type things. So are they are they very transferable or are they just completely different? No, I mean they're fairly they're fairly different. Um, I would say um, sports medicine and rheumatology is very much going down a, a physician route. Um, it's more about uh, disease control and uh, optimization without that kind of immediate intervention of, of surgery which so it's it's more of a chronic disease I would I mean I, I, I can't say for certain because obviously I've not been experienced in, in that um, but the surgical element isn't there and and so the surgeon in orthopedics is going to be mostly training in the surgical you know techniques whereas those other specialities it's more you know uh, the, the medical management um, so I would say they're very, very different. You wouldn't be able to trans. You wouldn't be able to. I couldn't go down the rheumatology aspect now. I couldn't say, oh, I, I just want to concentrate on medical management um, of of that type of disease. So, sports surgery maybe. Um, certainly, you can have sports surgeons, and so there is a niche in orthopedic surgery if you want to concentrate on patients who've had sporting injuries, and there is a you know vast need for that. You know, if you've uh, injured your uh, cruciate ligaments, um, if you're you know, uh, your shoulder's not uh, working as well as it should if you're a weightlifter or a boxer. Uh, so there's definitely the need for sports surgeons, um, but you wouldn't necessarily need to learn about sports medicine as such, to, which is more about kind of the physiology of sports and how to optimize um, performance. It's slightly different. So it sounds like orthopedics is a very unique specialty in itself. So. Let's get to the bad mouthing of it. What do you think is the most challenging, difficult, or unpleasant part of your I'm job? I'm not allowed to say that. They're all, they're all, it's all great. It doesn't yeah. exist. Um, to be fair, I'm not, I'm not really. Uh, I'm not really come across any genuinely uh, bad points about the speciality, like the topic itself, um, and it does cross over with all other specialities. So you know, your elderly patient. Uh, who breaks the hip, you'll need to have some uh, medical knowledge and you'll cross over with geriatric medicine. If uh, you have a, um, a child with a tumour, then you need to cross over to have some oncology knowledge. If you have an endocrine problem, then you know it crosses over very much with orthopaedics. So there is a lot of um, crossover with lots of um, specialties. The one, the one difficulty I would say with, with a specialty is not necessarily the topic itself, but the the path to become an orthopedic surgeon is very arduous. It's quite challenging, it's quite competitive, um, and, and it's quite sometimes difficult to deal with bad outcomes, um, but I think that's the same with all surgery. And that, that's just life, you know, that's life, life. life is difficult, life, life is tough. Yeah, life's tough, so, <laughs> so is orthopedic surgery. <laughs> all right, and so let's end on a really, really good note. What's one of the best things about orthopedic surgery? I, th I think it's the, just that immediate uh, improvement in, in life. And, and for me, the, the most exciting bit uh, in the trauma side is when you see a patient who has had that sudden life change get back onto their get back onto a path that wasn't uh, necessarily expected. So uh, one nice story, well, it's a heartbreaking, but also an interesting one is 
Uh, so Haiti after the earthquake, um, we were we were um, looking after patients who had spinal injuries after the after the earthquake. So as you can imagine, a hope never happened. But you're in a building, you have an earthquake, um, and and you lose either your life or your function. So we had twenty or thirty patients who would become uh, paraplegic or quadriplegic. Uh, one patient had. She was in her 30s, she lost her children, her parents, her brothers and sisters, her house. She survived, but she had a spinal cord injury and a massive pressure sore on her back and was obviously paralyzed. Um, but another patient, uh, who again was in his 20s, he had, a quad, he had a neck injury, quadriplegic, couldn't move his arms and legs. And you can imagine in Haiti, that's pretty much a death sentence. You're not really gonna have a much of a quality of life. So in 2010, I met this guy. Um, he ended up having some uh, stabilization surgery. It didn't improve his symptoms, but in 2017, I went back. He's still a quadriplegic, but he had regained some of the function in his arms. He got married, he'd had a child, uh, and he had a job um, as, a re as a result of this um, organization that's helping him. So it's pretty rewarding that somebody who has a devastating, you know, trauma ends up achieving something that's completely unexpected uh, and that is what orthopedic surgery can do it can get you back on 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 track no matter which uh, disability you've, you've obtained yeah and it's interesting how it's all quite relative so it really makes you appreciate what we do have for a lot of people walking will seem normal but if you've had that kind of trauma then being able to walk again is one of the biggest miracles so in a way it really teaches you to appreciate some of those basic things yep and orthopedic surgery does that Give it back to you. <laughs> Excellent. So, if you had to give one piece of advice to someone who's considering orthopedic surgery, what would it be? Um, just, I, I mean, I, I can't think of anything specifically about orthopedic surgery that you know this is what you have to do. Just be, just be passionate about it. Um, ask as many questions as you can, um, and just think about it in a more deeper sense. Like, realize what are you what are you obtaining by performing orthopedic surgery? What impact are you having on someone's life? and whether you value that uh, quality over quantity. Um, and, you know, I don't think there's anything more specifically that you can do. Uh, go to trauma sessions, go to theatre, um, clinics, you know, the usual. Yeah, but the general life advice sounds good. Think about what are you passionate about and yeah. what you really want to bring to people. So thank you so much for your time, Dr. Sakib. No worries, well. And we look forward to seeing our listeners on the next episode. Thank you.